This great song, or actually, it'd be more accurate to call it a collection of poetic songs. This book is absolutely unique in the Bible. There's really nothing like it. If this book were not in our Bible and we found it as some ancient scroll, nobody would think of including it within the text of the Bible because it's so different. There is, now please don't misunderstand me when I say this and we'll work our way through the book in the succeeding weeks, but there's not much direct reference to God in this book. It is a book almost exclusively focused on the joy, the beauty, the power of romantic love in marriage. Isn't it strange that a book like this is in our Bible? That that it really isn't telling us so much. Now, indirectly, and we'll get to it as we make our way through the book, indirectly it has a lot to teach us, but directly it's not talking much about how to get your life right with God, how to walk in this or in that. Indirectly it does, but directly, no, It is a very interesting book that speaks to us again about the power, the beauty, and the importance of romantic love in our life. Matter of fact, it seems like Bible translators can't even agree on the name for this book. Sometimes it's called the Song of Solomon. Sometimes it's called the Song of Songs. And sometimes it's called Canticles. That's the Latin word for songs. But no matter what somebody calls this book, It's always been very highly praised, even by people who haven't wanted to take the book literally at all. Even those who have wanted to take the book in a very speculative way, they've still prized it. There was an ancient Jewish rabbi who wrote about the time of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. His name was Rabbi Akiva, and he said this about the Song of Solomon. He said, the entire history of the world from the beginning to the very day does not outshine that day on which this book was given to Israel. All the scriptures indeed are holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. That's how highly prized this particular book of the Bible was. Matter of fact, when you go through it and look at it in church history, Charles Spurgeon preached, my man Charles Spurgeon, he preached 59 sermons on passages from the Song of Solomon. Bernard of Clairvaux, a a Middle Ages preacher, he preached 86 sermons on just chapters one and two of the Song of Solomon. Now, when we approach this Song of Songs, because that's what it says it is in verse one, when we approach this Song of Songs, there's a lot of different interpretive approaches that have been used in trying to understand this great song. Some people, their interpretive approach to the Song of Solomon is this, ignore it. It really is. Origen, who was a teacher in the early church, second century, he said of the Song of Solomon, quote, I advise and counsel everyone who is not yet rid of vexations of the flesh and blood, who has not ceased to feel the passions of this bodily nature, to refrain from reading this book and the things that will be said about it. Origen himself, he felt like he was ready to study the Song of Solomon. He castrated himself in an effort, misguided of course, of devotion to God. But he just said, stay away from this book. Now, other people embrace this book with great devotion, but they see it as primarily an allegory that describes the love relationship that exists between God and his people. In other words, they would say this, the Song of Solomon is not really about the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's about the relationship between God and his people. The old Puritan commentator, John Trapp, is a good example of this. He said this. He wrote, the chief speakers are not Solomon and the Shulamite, but Christ and his church. That's been a very common interpretive approach. But I tell you, I think that the best way to see this book and the way that we're going to treat it in these weeks that we take to go through it, we're going to see it as a literal, powerful description of the romantic and sensual love between a man and a woman observing both their courtship and then their marriage. It it does not give us, and please understand this about the Song of Solomon, it does not give us a smooth chronological story. 
Instead, it's almost like we're looking at somebody's Facebook wall. We're we're looking at snapshots from a photo album that don't necessarily have a strict chronology. But here's a snapshot, there's a snapshot, here's another one, and we're just invited to look at each individual snapshot, and they aren't necessarily in strict chronological order, but they make sense thematically. But I do got to say this. Because God deliberately uses the marriage relationship as an illustration of our relationship with him, we find that this great song of songs, it does speak to our relationship with God. I would put it this way. It is not primarily about our relationship with God. That's not the first or the primary meaning, yet it does powerfully speak to it. Because God does use this illustration of the relationship between he and his people as the same way as a relationship between a husband and a wife. It's clearly a secondary meaning, sublimated to the plain literal meaning, but it's nevertheless, it's valid and it's important. I mean, after all, look at what it says about it in verse one. This is the song of songs. This is the greatest of all songs. That's what it's claiming for itself. And it shows us What a high regard God has for marriage and romantic love. What a high regard God has for the institution of marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, wouldn't you think that the greatest song in the Bible, the song of songs, would be a song of praise to God? Don't you think singing songs of praise to God is pretty important? Yeah, it's right up there. God says, no, let me tell you something. The song of songs, my highest song in all the scriptures, it's going to be all about romantic and marital love. That absolutely surprises and blesses me. Now, that idea that God places such a high value on romantic love and the married life, it is contrary to the view that has been held through much of the church, through much of church history, at least since the late third century. You see, in the early centuries of the church, the idea was held that the truly spiritual people in the church should not or cannot be married, that they should not or cannot enjoy sexual love. That was the thinking in the church in the early centuries. But let me tell you, That's not the thinking of the Bible. Number one, that thinking is almost completely unknown in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was assumed that godly people would get married. Ladies and gentlemen, Old Testament Hebrew has no word for bachelor. It just doesn't exist. In Old Testament thinking, there were to be no bachelors. Every patriarch was married. All the priests were married. And as far as we know, every prophet was married except for one, the prophet Jeremiah, who was uniquely commanded by God not to marry. The office of high priest was hereditary, which meant you passed it on to your sons, which means you had to be married in order to produce these children. And God, God said this most intimate place of closeness and communion that the high priest would have on the day of atonement coming into the most holy place, that that was going to be occupied by a married man, the high priest. And also, not only is that idea not present in the Old Testament, the idea that the truly spiritual cannot or should not be married, it's also not based in the New Testament. The New Testament reaffirms the value of marriage in Matthew chapter 19 when the religious leaders came to Jesus with a question about divorce and Jesus said, no, let's talk about marriage instead. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 tells us that the marriage bed, that's understood as the place of sexual relations in marriage. The Bible tells us that the marriage bed is undefiled and should be honored by all. Paul tells us that it's desirable for elders and church leaders to be married. He says that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. And Jesus began his ministry by blessing a wedding. 
And matter of fact, the final step in man's relationship and fellowship with God, it's illustrated as being a wedding feast. Over and over again, God puts his stamp of approval upon marriage and that kind of relationship in the New Testament. Then you ask yourself, where did the church get this crazy idea that somehow truly spiritual people wouldn't be married? Well, because there's a difference in the way that the Old Testament sees marriage and the New Testament sees marriage. In the New Testament, we see that the unmarried state can be good and in some cases preferable before God. Do you know where we get these examples? How about this? Number one, Jesus, unmarried. Paul, unmarried. We also have the examples of those who were eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven and that Paul recognizes in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness can be an advantage for the kingdom in certain seasons. You see, the New Testament and the Old Testament look at marriage somewhat differently. In the Old Testament, it's just absolutely assumed and even commanded that everybody would be married. In the New Testament, the idea is no, not all are married. God has a very real and important place in his kingdom for those who are not married. Even though the Old Testament almost seems to forbid singleness, the New Testament allows it for those who are gifted and called, and it even encourages them to use their gifted singleness for God's glory. But I'll tell you what, though. Even so, the dominant view for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Christian church was that sexual passion and spirituality were contradictory, that they were opposed to each other. And the idea was that to be truly spiritual, you had to repress your sexuality. That led to a desire that this passion, that this devotedness would be almost replaced by the relationship with Jesus. In other words, the medieval church gave enormous attention to the Song of Solomon. Because in those days, it was thought that you couldn't legitimately have sexual expression and be a true follower of God. They, they channeled it in some strange way into this devotion, or at least allegory, of the relationship between Jesus and the church. So we don't regard the Song of Solomon at all as being primarily allegorical. Did you know that the Song of Solomon never claims to be an allegory? Never once. And it's not really written as an allegory. But it cannot be denied that there is the aspect of illustration. We do see what God illustrates in it, but we take the primary meaning to be relationship of romantic love and marriage. Now there's another line in verse one. I've talked for 15 minutes almost and we haven't even made it out of first one. You see what it says? The song of songs, which is Solomon's. We learn that Solomon, the son of David, one of the great kings of ancient Israel, he was the one who composed this song. And because the Bible tells us that Solomon composed 1,005 songs, that's in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, this was the greatest song among them. If you're the greatest song among 1,005 songs, you've got to be a pretty good song. And this was the greatest of them all. The mention of Solomon, it brings up another problem with understanding this book. Mainly, who are the people and the characters described in this book? You see, as you look at your translation of the Song of Solomon, you'll see different characters are given different speaking lines. And we try to figure out who's speaking where. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's a little bit obscure. But it seems at the end of it all that we have a drama that shows that there are three main characters or speakers. You have the young maiden, the Shulamite, she's called. You have the young man, Solomon, who's the beloved. And you have the chorus, known as the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, in addition to those three main characters, there are also a few minor characters, such as the brothers of the Shulamite and some relatives to the wedding party. 
This young man is often called the beloved in the text, and it's generally identified with Solomon. And you know what? It's pretty curious that God used Solomon to write this song of songs. Do you know why? Because in the big picture, he miserably failed to attain the picture that he paints here in the Song of Solomon. I mean, if we believe that Solomon actually wrote the Song of Solomon, we're left with some very difficult questions. Perhaps they are unanswerable questions, such as this. When did he write this? How do you fit 700 wives and 300 concubines into the picture painted by the Song of Solomon? It's really sort of interesting. I think that the Song of Solomon is really prompted by the fact of either, either Solomon wrote this very early in his life before he was corrupted by his sexual and marital excess or he wrote it at the end of his life when he looked back and realized how wrong he had been and with the wisdom of God he wrote of how it should have been in his life. I think that's entirely possible. But understand this, friends. We have the question, why was this man who was so wise such a fool when it came to romance and love? You know, Solomon wasn't the first, is it? Solomon was not the first nor the last wise man who lived like a fool when it came to romance and love. And maybe I could include the women in that as well, too. Don't you know people like that? Don't you know people who are smart people? But when it comes to romance and love, they're fools. Solomon provides a tragic but powerful illustration of just that very person. His wise analysis, his skillful presentation of the glory of romantic love and sensual love. Solomon knew it in theory much more than he ever knew it in his own enduring experience. I want you to hold on to that thought as we make our way throughout the Song of Solomon. Because you know what? It's possible that this journey through the Song of Solomon may be depressing for some of you. It's depressing for you because I'm not married. I'm never going to get married. What good is the Song of Solomon for me? It's depressing for you because you think, I am married, but the beauty and power of love that gets expressed in the Song of Solomon... My marriage doesn't look anything like this. It just makes me sad. Listen, we are spending these weeks in the Song of Solomon for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's God's word. And we're supposed to be given over to every word of God, the whole counsel of God. And even though there might be some difficult times in this, let's take them on together. The second thing is simply this. Remember who wrote the book. A man who didn't experience the ideal himself. What we're going to find in the Song of Solomon is an idealized picture of what love and romance is. Now, it, it may be an ideal that is beyond our reach. Certainly it's beyond our reach every day, every week, every year of our life. But if we'll listen to God and if we'll follow him, he'll give us at least tastes of this along the way. And if you're not married, what does this book have to say to you? Well, first of all, this book, and you're going to see it not only tonight, but as we make our way through it, it's going to tell you a lot what you should keep in mind when you think about a potential mate. That's very important for you to understand if you're not married. It might also show you that maybe you're not suited for marriage, not the way you are right now. It's going to be a lot to show us along the lines just that way. Now, let's take a look at the opening words of the maiden beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read from verse 2 to the first line of verse 4. Verse 4 is complicated. You have three or four different people speaking in one verse, verse 4. So we're going to take verse 4 in pieces. Right now we're going to read from verse 2 up into the first line of verse 4. Ready for this? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. Notice this. 
the dialogue between the maiden and the young man begins with a passionate outburst from the maiden herself. She says, I want to receive and I want to experience the love of my beloved. Right here, you learn something about the power of this book. You know, you, you can learn a lot of principles from the Song of Solomon, but this is not primarily given to us as a handbook on marriage. It really isn't. What this is given to us, as I said before, it's snapshots of a vital, loving, beautiful relationship. It's a book that makes us feel something through its strong poetry, and we learn through the feeling. But man, some people are uncomfortable with this. Some people are uncomfortable with a Bible book that begins with saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's like, man, where do you find that in the concordance? (laughs) Friends, when you take a look at what the commentators have said over the years about the Song of Psalms, they're very uncomfortable with this. That old Puritan commentator, John Trapp, I love what he does here. He gets a little nervous. You can almost see his, the quill pen shaking as he writes this. He says, she must have Christ or else she dies. She must have the kisses of Christ's mouth, even though those sweet pledges of love in his word, or she cannot be contented but will complain. Now look, I'm sure the maiden does want Jesus, but that's not what she's talking about here. She wants her beloved. And she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of my mouth. We're struck with two complementary truths regarding this loving couple. First of all, notice, would you please notice this maiden, this woman, she is not weak and passive. She's like, let him kiss me with the kisses of her mouth. But secondly, the young man's the leader. In other words, she isn't going up to the man in some inappropriate way saying, I'm going to kiss you. But he says, let him come to me. It's a very interesting mixture here between a strength that's displayed on the part of the woman, yet at the same time, a surrender unto him. This is undeniably a strong woman. By the way, she does most the talking in the Song of Solomon by a measure of nearly two to one. Wives, you can take a little bit of peace in that, can't you? It's even in the Song of Solomon that the woman's talking a lot more than the man. Yet we see that the young man occupies a place of leadership. She doesn't initiate the kiss, but she asks that he might kiss her. He, excuse me, she asks that he would draw her to himself. Why? Look at it there in verse two. For your love is better than wine. To the maiden, the love of her beloved was more refreshing and intoxicating than wine. She was deeply, passionately infatuated with her man. Now, I need to take just a little excursion here. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of Victorian England, he followed the custom of his age, and he saw this as primarily a description of the love relationship between Jesus and the believer. And so even he took it in a very allegorical way. Man, there's some really good, sweet stuff in there. So, so he had a great sermon titled, Better Than Wine. And in it, he developed two major points. Number one, Christ's love is better than wine because of what it is not. In other words, it's totally safe. And it can be taken without question. You can't take too much of Jesus' love. It doesn't cost you anything. Taking more of it does not diminish the taste of it. It's totally without impurities. It'll never turn sour and it produces no ill effects. There's no hangover from the love of Jesus. That makes it better than wine. And then secondly, he says, Christ's love is better than wine because of what it is. Like wine, the love of Christ has healing properties. Like wine, the love of Christ is associated with giving strength. Like wine, the love of Christ is a symbol of joy. And like wine, the love of Christ exhilarates the soul. That's good preaching. It may not be a great analysis of the Song of Solomon, but it's great preaching. But then notice this. What she says in verse 3 is very revealing. She says, Your name is ointment poured forth. Please notice that. What does she say? Your name is ointment poured forth. What's the biblical idea behind the name? It's not just the name, but the name is the representation of the person and the character of the individual. 
She's talking about his character when she says, your name is ointment poured forth. She's speaking of his character, his reputation. The name represented much more than just by the title by which her beloved was addressed. It represented the reputation. The name was what? Like ointment poured forth and it flowed from the fragrance of his good ointments. You know what this says? Obviously, this young maiden is physically attracted to her beloved. There's something about him physically. You you attract me, she says. But even more so, she loved his character. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a huge aspect here. This shows us that a wise woman chooses a man whom others see to be a man, a character. In other words, she's choosing a man and other people see he has a good name. His name is like sweet-smelling ointment. When his name is said in public, people don't hold their nose. There's something not quite right when a woman falls for a man and Everybody else thinks he's a bad character, but she thinks he sees his secret character that nobody else can see. Ladies, let the alarm go off in your head. If his name does not give forth a fragrant smell, if other people cannot see that he's a man of character and good reputation, that is a dangerous uh, sign. And the seriousness of her estimation of him, the way that it goes far deeper than just some kind of physical or sexual attraction, it shows that the character of their passionate love is actually very deep. You see, this collection of love poems that we see in the Song of Solomon, you might think that this is primarily a book about falling in love. I don't think so. I don't think that the Song of Solomon is primarily about falling in love. I think it's more accurately a book about building love. And it's built on the foundation of character. That's why she says, verse 3, Therefore, the virgins love you. You see, the maiden understood that others could see the good character qualities in her beloved without necessarily being romantically attracted to him. And this made her love him all the more. So she says, draw me away in the beginning of verse four. This is wonderful. I want the man who sweeps me off my feet to be a man of good character and reputation that other people can see as a man of good character and reputation. Now, before I go on to the next line in verse four, I've been talking to the ladies, haven't I? Ladies, look for a man who has this kind of character and good reputation. Look for a man that other people with. But should I not say just a moment to the men? Men, are you that kind of man of character and reputation? I can imagine some, many of the men here perhaps saying, whew, good heavens, I'm married. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Do you realize how important it is for you to be a man that rightfully your wife can respect? A man of good name in the community. That, I'll say it again, people don't have to hold their nose when your name is mentioned. This made him truly attractive to her. And so this isn't just a responsibility on the part of the women to seek after that kind of man. It's a high call for men to say, I need to be a man of character. Okay, you spend all that time in the gym chiseling your abs. Okay, fine, whatever, that's great. Bodily exercise profits something. But don't you dare forget your character Your character is going to provide a much longer foundation for true relationship and a true strong marital bond than those chiseled abs, which aren't going to last all that long. Next line in verse four. This seems to be an interjection from the daughters of Jerusalem. 
We will run after you. Now, the we of this verse is somewhat hard to identify. And as I mentioned previously, sometimes we don't know exactly who's speaking in the Song of Solomon. But it's probably the idea that there's an onlooking chorus who observe and celebrate the love between the maiden and the young man. They want to see what's going to happen in this beautiful relationship. And what do they say? They say, this is a good thing. And from a respectful distance, they want to be a part of it. Now, the next line in verse four, the Shulamite, the maiden, she enters the king's chambers. It says, the king has brought me into his chambers. This is another line that seems to reinforce the point that this is Solomon. The young maiden comes into the private rooms of the palace. However, because it does not yet seem that their love is consummated with a sexual relationship, that happens later in the Song of Solomon. It may very well be that the chambers here are poetic and symbolic. He's welcomed me into the affections and the secrets of his heart. He's opening up his life to me rather than, well, we've gone into the bedroom together. If I could be just honest and very frank, it seems like the bedroom comes in later. The chambers here are probably a symbolic reference to the inner places of his life. Then the last line or the next line of verse 4 We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. That seems to be the daughters of Jerusalem. They're celebrating. This is good. It's not merely fun. It's not merely exciting. This is good. And we're going to remember your love more than wine. Now the last line of verse 4, continuing on through verse 6. Here is the Shulamite considering herself and her beloved. She says, rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me and they made me keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now notice the first line of the maiden at the end of verse four. She says, rightly do they love you. You see, hearing the words of the daughters of Jerusalem in the previous line, that the maiden reconsiders their high estimation of her. She says, yes, this is wonderful. It's appropriate. It's right that they do love you. You are a man of character and everybody can see it. Yet I am somewhat disqualified. She, she looks at her beloved, the man, and goes, yeah, rightly do they love you, but look at me. I fall short. I don't measure up to the standards of beauty in my culture. I am dark, she says. And then she goes on. She says, I'm dark like the tents of Kedar. He says, I'm not worthy of the praise and of the beloved's attention. It, it's very interesting to see That marriage-eligible women today should have this same perspective that we talked about. That they should look at that man and be able to say, rightly is this man respected by others. There's some lines in a modern film where a woman talks about what she loves about a man. And this is what she says. Well, why do you love this man? And she says, I'll tell you what I love him. I love him for who he almost is. The idea is that she's loving him for what she can make him to be. She's got to ask herself, do I respect this man for who he is right now? Because if he's not, you're never going to be able to submit yourself to him the way the Bible says that a wife should submit unto her husband. So she sees that, yes, I can respect you. Rightly do they love you, but look at me. What's the line in verse five? I am dark, but lovely. The self-doubt the maiden has regarding her own appearance is real. She recognizes that she's lovely, but she felt unattractive and unworthy. She says, don't look upon me because I am dark. Now we look at that. She goes, man, she says right there in verse six, the sun has tanned me. Well, look, what's wrong with that? She's got a great tan. You know, in that culture, a great tan was not considered to be attractive. In that culture, a great tan meant that you worked outdoors. 
It meant that you were a hard laborer. It was a sign of wealth and prestige to not have the great tent, to be very pale. In that way of thinking, the more pale, the better. It was a sign of affluence. Nowadays, I guess it's a sign of affluence that you can be out and enjoy the sun. And so we kind of like the tanned look today. But back then, man, it was like the paler, the better. And she looks at her own skin. She goes, man, I'm tan. I've been out in the sun. I've been out working in the fields. Matter of fact, she says it was the cause of other people. Verse six, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. You see, her unjust, her unattractive appearance was unjustly forced upon her by her stepbrothers. She, she, she's a little bit of a Cinderella figure. She's forced to work by cruel relatives. She thinks, man, the hardships of my life They have disfigured me in some way. Maybe I am less qualified to be truly loved, but that's not it at all. She's going to discover that despite the hardships of her life, which she fears have disfigured her and made her unlovable, no, no, what she's going to discover is instead it's made something in her character and her person that makes her even more lovely in the eyes of her beloved. So let's take a look now at verse seven. The Shulamites now speaking to her beloved. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Here, the beloved, the man, Solomon, is pictured as a shepherd. That's the figure. It it may be drawing on a symbolic representation because in those days, kings were often pictured as shepherds. And anyway, the picture is, the poetry here is, the beloved is a shepherd and she wants to know, hey, where are you doing your work? Where are you keeping your flocks? Because I just want to be with you. I want to be with you. So tell me where you're going to be. I don't want to wander around and wander around all the other shepherds with all their flocks because why, look at verse seven, why should I be as one who veils herself? She's proclaiming her modesty there because in that culture, a veiled woman was a woman of low sexual morals. She didn't want to make herself look like a loose girl in following the flocks, looking for any lover. She wanted to know, tell me where my beloved is because I want to go straight to him and I don't want to shop around. I want my man, my special man, my beloved. She's not looking for a man. She's looking for her man, her beloved. By the way, this idea that the veil indicated a loose woman or a prostitute, that was true in Old Testament history. Genesis chapter 38, verses 13 and 15 tell us that when Tamar, the widow of the sons of Judah, wanted to entrap her father-in-law Judah, she covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place. That was making herself available as a prostitute. Now what's kind of interesting from a cultural standpoint is later in New Testament times, in Corinth... To be unveiled was a sign of being loose. It shows how the expressions may change from time to time, from culture to culture. But in those cultures, to be veiled was to be on display as something of a loose woman. You see, she's humble, but also she has integrity. Now, verse 8, the beloved is going to praise the maiden. If you do not know, O fairest among women... Follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Chivero's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. In verse 8, poetically, he tells the beloved where you can find me. Just follow the flocks. They'll lead you to me. He welcomes his presence. Hey, you want to be with me? Come on, you can be with me. I am happy to have you with me. And then he praises her. He praises her in poetic terms that sound strange and maybe a little bit uncomfortable to me. I, I mean, look, I don't know if you've ever given that sweet talk to your wife. You are like my filly among fellows, Pharaoh's chariots. Like, well, gee, thanks a lot. (laughs) Hey, listen, actually, this is pretty bold speak. Historical studies put this phrase in an interesting light. 
Normally you would think of a beautiful filly magnificently drawing Pharaoh's chariots. It's like, oh, you like a beautiful horse. And listen, a horse, when it's beautiful, it can be beautiful. It's really striking to see a beautiful horse, but that's probably not what he's talking about. There are some ancient sources, and we can't be entirely clear on this, but there's some ancient sources that indicate that Pharaoh's chariots were always drawn by stallions. And so if you put a filly among Pharaoh's chariot horses, you were putting a filly among a bunch of stallions. In other words, you're the kind of woman that arouses excitement among men. You're attractive, woman. You you think of yourself as dark and unlovely. I'm telling you're beautiful. I'm telling you that you have a magnetic draw to me. You have the same sexual attraction that a mare loose among stallions might have. And then he piles it on. Verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. I'm praising your beauty. Then in verse 11, the daughters of Jerusalem burst in. They say, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. They're saying, yes, we want you to be beautiful. By the way, notice this. The beloved, the man, praises the woman's beauty, her attractiveness, and then the chorus joins in. There's a hidden principle in there that I need to speak about just for a moment. It's one reason why it's important to a woman that her man treats her well and treats her well in public. She instinctively understands that other people will treat her better if she sees that her man treats her better and values her in public. It's great to do Things that make your wife feel special. It's even better to do those things in public. I discovered this as a young married man. I figured out that it was way better if I wanted to do something kind of extravagant, like send my wife flowers. If I sent her flowers when she was at work, it was way better for those flowers to come in while she was at the office in front of all the other girls than for me to send flowers when she was at home. Because then everybody could see her man loves her. She's valued. And the daughters of Jerusalem join in. They they see, yes, we'll give you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. Then verse 12, the woman, the Shulamite, is going to describe how precious her beloved is to her. She says, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Notice this, verse 12. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. Again, they're speaking in poetic images, but these are pretty powerful images. The idea is simply here that the maiden is aware of her attractive powers and how her attractiveness is drawing the beloved, the king himself. She is aware of her attractiveness and she's using it in in a wonderful manner. This isn't casual flirtation with questionable liaisons. She's saying, you're my man and my attractiveness is being used towards you. Then she says in verse 13, a bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. You see, she says, I'm attractive to you, and I get that, but you also are attractive and precious to me. The bundle of myrrh is like something that smells sweet. He says, that's how you are to me. You smell good to me. Now, of course, there's something very practical there. Sometimes men smell bad. And it's not very attractive to women when men smell bad. But there's also something more than just the very practical and obvious there. It's like, this is something for a man to say, I want to be associated like a sweet-smelling fragrance to this woman. Because you are like a, you, 
You smell good to me. I like being around you. It smells pleasant. You are pleasant and wonderful to me. And that presence lingers. Look at what it says in verse 13. It's like a bundle of myrrh that lies all night between my breasts. The idea there is that the presence and the scent of her beloved stayed with her even when she was alone. I think about my beloved and it's wonderful to me to think even when I'm all alone. I go to bed thinking about how wonderful he is. His goodness remains with me like a fragrance that's on a necklace between my breasts. And we take a look at that in verse 13. That phrase, between my breasts, the reference to the female breast made by the maiden herself, it makes some readers and some commentators of the Song of Solomon uncomfortable. There's this reflective desire on a lot of the more, shall I say, uptight commentators to say, he's got to be talking about something else. (laughs) This cannot mean the female breast. That would not be in the Holy Bible, would it? And so they've been been all kinds of explanations for this. They say, no, 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 these are not speaking about the female breast. Not, no, this is speaking about Moses and Aaron. (laughs) Or Messiah, son of David, and Messiah, son of Ephraim. Or Moses and Phinehas. Or Joshua and Eleazar. Or it's speaking about the church in two different aspects. Or it's speaking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or it's speaking about love for God and love for neighbor. Or it's speaking about the blood and water that flowed from Jesus. Or it's speaking about the outer man and the inner man. Ladies and gentlemen, this is uptight nuts. This is just craziness. You know what it's speaking about? The breasts of the beloved or of the woman, I should say. No, and she's just simply saying that your goodness lingers in my heart and in my mind. Matter of fact, she makes the association with the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi is a famous oasis in the Judean wilderness. And it's a place where there's the water of life. A cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi would be alive, beautiful, healthy, and full of good smells. She says, that's how good he is to me. So let's take a look here. The last few verses, verse 15, the beloved praises the beauty of the maiden. Behold, you're fair, my love. Behold, you're fair. You have dove's eyes. I see your beauty, and it's especially in your eyes. Now, by the way, isn't that a beautiful way for a man to speak of a woman's beauty? I need to say something about the Song of Solomon. I know we're going a long time in this study tonight. Maybe this first study is going to be a little bit longer than our other ones, but I think I can have your attention for just a few more moments. When he says, I see your beauty, it's like dove's eyes. It's poetic, it's sweet, it's powerful. That's how the Song of Solomon is. We've been talking and sort of chuckling tonight over the fact that uh, interpreters, especially in the past, have taken the Song of Solomon and sort of wanted to strip it away of all kind of sensuality. Those breasts cannot mean breasts. It has to mean something else. Surely it's Moses and Aaron. No, 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 no. Okay. We understand that's a weird way to approach the Song of Solomon. But can I tell you about another weird way to approach the Song of Solomon that's kind of present in our current age? I've read some teachers and heard some preachers on the Song of Solomon, they make the book dirty. This is not a dirty book. This is not a book filled with crude sexual innuendo. Look, it's honest, it's frank. It'll make us a little bit uncomfortable in a few places as we go through it. But it's not dirty. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It treats Intimacy between a man and a woman with honesty, yet dignity and power. That's one of the things I really appreciate about the Song of Solomon. So I take a look at the former commentators, the old guys, and a lot of them didn't get it. They sort of wanted to strip it of its sensuality. I take a look at some of the new guys who talk about it, and it's like, dude, your mind's filthy. You're you're looking for for sexual connotations that aren't even there. Let, Let the text speak for itself. But you have dove's eyes. It just sort of speaks of the beautiful form of expression throughout the whole book. Now verse 16 and 17, 
the response of the maiden, the Shulamite. She says, behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedars and our rafters of fir. She says, no, listen, you see me as beautiful. I see you as handsome. By the way, she's clearly responding to his previous expression of love. If you look at verse 15, where the beloved says to the woman, you're beautiful, she responds with the masculine form of the same Hebrew word. They're saying it back to each other. You're beautiful, you're handsome. It's the same Hebrew word, one in the feminine, one in the masculine. She's responding to his words of love and sweetness. And the last verses leave us with them sort of taking a walk through the forest. Our bed is green. The beans are houses. It's like they're walking through the forest. Here's the, the mossy ground and here's the trees above us. Let's take a walk through the forest and enjoy these moments of sweetness and intimacy between us. Look, we, we have to leave it there. And we'll pick up right here next week at chapter two. And look at some other snapshots of this relationship. But I just wonder how it leaves you right now, leaving the Song of Solomon. Look, I I think we understand that because this is an idealized view, whether you're married or whether you're single, you look at this and you go, there's a beauty and a power in this that I want to experience more of. This is an idealized view. Not every day of my life, even in the best marriages, fulfills all of this. So you say, Lord, you give me something to grow into. You give me something to aspire to. You give me something to pray for and to believe you for. But if I could be so bold to say it as well, it does point to something to the beauty and the power of Jesus' relationship with us. You say, yes, Jesus, we want that to be all it can be as well. Show us both, Lord. We want both to be true. Father, we see this beautiful, powerful, idealized view of the beauty of romantic and sensual love. Lord, we we pray that you'd make us long for it in our lives. Prepare for it in our own character. But Lord, as much as anything... um, honor you in all things so that Lord um, we could have beautiful relationship with you and out of that flow beautiful relationship with the beloved or the maiden that you have appointed unto us thank you Lord Lord we we see that this greatest of songs speaks about something that has the power to bring either such great fulfillment or such great pain into our lives. Use it, Lord, to the fullest good in our lives. In your power and grace, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.